Well, good morning. My name is Tim Hollis. I'm one of the ministers on staff here at the Parkway Church. We've been talking this semester about cults and other religions and other worldviews, and we've been doing our best to equip you and warn you about false worldviews and cults. And today we're adding Jehovah's Witnesses to that lineup. Okay, Jehovah's Witnesses have followers in 240 nations with an estimated 21 million people identifying as Jehovah's Witnesses. But the Jehovah's Witnesses don't count most of those 21 million. To be a real member of the Jehovah's Witness organization, you must actively engage in door-to-door evangelism. And so, with that in mind, Jehovah's Witness report to have more like 8.7 million members worldwide, which is still extremely significant. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses are considered by many to be Christians. And I'll be honest, they are indeed very Christian-y. Out of everyone we've talked about so far, I'd say the Jehovah's Witnesses are by far the Christian-niest. And that's certainly the impression they'll give you when they come knocking at your door. They'll talk about how the Bible's God's word, how they believe in Jesus. They believe that we need a savior to die for our sins, that Jesus gave his life for us. They believe that we can only find forgiveness in Jesus. They believe that Jesus offers us everlasting life. All these very Christian-y things. But just because they're Christian-y, doesn't mean they're Christian. Quite the opposite, actually. For example, they deny the Trinity. Therefore, they don't actually believe in God. They deny the deity of Christ. They believe he's the Archangel Michael. And so there's some Arianism popping up again, like we've talked about several times the past few weeks. Forgot to mention you should get your heresy bingo card ready for our class today. They uh, teach that the Holy Spirit is not God or even a person at all, but rather an impersonal force, like God's spiritual wind. I wouldn't suggest trying to blow it on COVID-19. That hasn't worked so far. They, uh, they teach that Jesus wasn't physically resurrected, but was instead recreated as the archangel Michael, which is just amazing. They believe that only those who are members of the Jehovah's Witnesses organization will be saved. Everyone else, you and me, are of the kingdom of Satan, so congratulations, among other things. These are not Christian-y things. These beliefs are grossly heretical. They're a gross mishandling and twisting of the scriptures. And yet, according to research done by the Pew Research Center in 2014, more than half of Jehovah's Witnesses used to be part of Orthodox Christian churches. Meaning, these folks saw themselves as Christians and then were lured toward what didn't seem all that different didn't seem all that different to them. It seemed pretty similar to the churches they were a part of. But in fact, it was a turn in the opposite direction. But like what Zach said a few weeks ago, it's hard to see a lie if you don't know the truth. And I believe that many Christians have a difficult time seeing the lies of Jehovah's Witnesses because they've not been equipped with the truth. So our hope is that you would walk away from all these classes about all these false worldviews this semester equipped with the truth so that you can easily recognize the lie, reject it, and teach others to do likewise. And so in that vein, here's what we're talking about today. The class will really just be in two sections, okay? First, I want to go through a history of the Jehovah's Witness movement, talk about some of the key players and key events that really serve as the foundation for the theology and practices of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then we'll go through and talk about some of their really problematic theology, which makes it crystal clear, if there was any doubt, that there is no such thing as a Christian Jehovah's Witness. 
okay? So let's just begin with a history of the Jehovah's Witness movement. Now first, like Jared Lawson uh, mentioned a few weeks ago when he taught on Mormonism, the worst century for theology was probably the 19th century in America. It not only produced Mormonism, Christian science, the word of faith, prosperity gospel movement, but also the Jehovah's Witness movement. But Jehovah's Witnesses were not always called Jehovah's Witnesses. They were originally called Russellites back in the 19th century after their founder, Charles Taze Russell. Taze, like a taser. I have no idea, no idea. Every cult has its guru, its, its founder, its prophet, whatever you want to call it. And for the Jehovah's Witnesses, that man was Charles Taze Russell. So Charles Taze Russell was born in 1852, just nine years before the Civil War began. He was born to a pretty well-off family in Pennsylvania. His father owned several really successful clothing stores for men that were called, and this is just your fun fact of the day. If you learn nothing else from this talk, I hope that you learn this, that men's clothing stores were called haberdasheries. Haberdasheries. And little Charles was sort of destined to join the family business. He actually started running his own stores, stores, plural, at 13 years old. So those child labor laws were going great. He even dropped out of school at 14 to work full-time for the haberdashery. Because why get a well-rounded education when you're doing just fine as a haberdasher? Now, what you may not know is that Russell was actually raised in a reformed Calvinistic Presbyterian church. Meaning, Russell was raised with the Westminster Catechism. And he grew up in a church that placed a high priority on doctrine and orthodoxy, in contrast to all the tent revivalists that were really popular at the time. His favorite pastor was actually Charles Spurgeon, not just because they have the same first name, but one biography said of Charles Russell, his favorite teacher was Spurgeon because, as Russell said, Spurgeon peppered it hot, his claim being that if one believed a thing, he should tell it with all of his might. So at the age of 15, he, meaning Russell, used to go about the city of Pittsburgh on Saturday evenings with a piece of chalk, writing on the fence boards, and telling the people not to fail to attend church on Sunday so that they might escape the terrible hell in which he so firmly believed. Okay, so he's a little bit fiery. Okay, he's a little, the chalk thing's a little bit weird. But all in all, he kind of sounds like a pretty cool dude. A reformed haberdasher who loves Spurgeon? I mean, what could go wrong? Well, things pretty much go way downhill from there. One day, he's having a conversation with some friends. He's about 16 years old, and they pressed him about his Christian beliefs, specifically his belief in a triune God. They thought that, that sounded ridiculous. How can three equal one or one equal that? doesn't make sense. And his belief that a loving God could torment people eternally in hell. They, his friends didn't think that sounded very loving. And evidently, those two statements completely unraveled Russell's faith. He had no answer. And so as he would later describe it, his faith wavered. He essentially called it quits on Christianity. But a couple years later, in 1870, when Russell was 18 years old, he heard a man preach who not only preached with a passion that Russell himself had once possessed and had sort of lost, but he preached that God was not a trinity and that there was no hell. Charles Russell obviously was very interested. He later wrote about this experience. Though his scripture exposition was not entirely clear, it was sufficient under God 
to reestablish my wavering faith in the divine inspiration of the Bible and to show that the records of the apostles and the prophets are indissolubly linked. What I heard sent me to my Bible to study with more zeal and care than ever before, and I shall ever thank the Lord for the leading. It did help me greatly in the unlearning of errors, a.k.a. forgetting the Trinity, (laughs) and thus prepared me for the truth. And so basically, Russell's faith journey was kind of like ordering a sandwich at Subway. He just walked through the line, kept all the ingredients he wanted. Okay, yeah, I'll take that. Said no thanks to stuff he didn't. You know, no Trinity, no hell. I don't want any of that wet lettuce either. Until he had a faith that matched his taste. Until he had unlearned all of the errors that he didn't like. And like he said, this newfound faith really drove him to go study his Bible. It's like he had kind of gotten his spark back and he wanted everyone else to experience this as well. And so he organized a Bible study to teach others about how to properly study the scriptures. And by properly, I mean in a way that no one else in 2000 years of Christian history had ever interpreted the scriptures. And when I say Bible study, I need to qualify what that means as well. When we think Bible study, we imagine working through a book of the Bible and trying to understand what the author was trying to communicate to his audience and then how that kind of applies to our lives as well. But Russell's Bible studies were primarily focused on piecing together like biblical chronologies and numbers and prophecies to determine the exact date of Christ's return. And kind of using the Bible as, a, as like a manual to prepare for the, the coming of the Lord, okay? So Russell and his friends, they're the original doomsday preppers and the Bible was sort of their, their shopping list. And so Russell grew increasingly fond of making predictions of when Christ would return. He just, he'd put these charts together. He'd kind of talk about them with his Bible study. He'd be, okay, this is the date he's gonna return. Oh no, oh wait, no, I changed my mind. This is the date. But in 1875, after talking with a doomsday prepper, he became convinced that Christ had actually already returned invisibly in the year 1874. Okay, so in 1875, he's talking with a buddy and this guy convinces him that Christ has already come a year previously. Whoops, you know, he missed it. After all the charts, what had happened was Jesus actually invisibly came. He came invisibly to sort of set up his ruling government on the earth and to prepare his people for the battle of Armageddon which would apparently end in 1914. And that would be the end of all earthly nations and the beginning of Jesus's everlasting rule. Well, like any self-respecting false teacher, especially one who was a multimillionaire at this point due to the success of all of his haberdasheries, he started spewing his ignorance around the country, primarily through selling magazines. His magazine, which was called Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence, okay, so you can hear that. Zion's Watchtower, he's looking for Christ, and he's also heralding that, well, Christ's presence, his invisible, invisible return has already happened. So this mad magazine that would eventually become known as The Watchtower, which we still have today, this is where the Jehovah's Witness organization actually gets its name today, The Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Now, not a lot of people subscribe to magazines anymore, But just imagine Russell as one of these flat earther conspiracy theorists on YouTube. Okay, completely unqualified. You know, Russell dropped out of school at 14. He had no understanding of the biblical languages. He couldn't even identify the letters of the Greek alphabet. And yet, people subscribed to his channel. 
to hear the latest conspiracies, the latest developments in his research to uncover the truth that the Baptists and the Catholics don't want you to know about. And then they tell their friends and, and they would tell their friends and they would con- convince their friends to, to, to subscribe as well. And the movement just grew and grew and grew and grew. In 1881, I actually think Charles Russell invented uh, what are known today as influencers, like people on Instagram. I think he invented that uh, because the Watchtower Magazine organization offered to pay subscribers a commission if they could sell subscriptions to their neighbors. But not talk about how they were selling anything, just talk about how they just, it had changed their life and it was just more of an evangelism opportunity. And so they were asked to go door to door with magazines in hand and, and tell their neighbors about the latest end times formulations and conspiracies. And then they get a, a kickback. They get a commission for every magazine they sold. And so similar to how shocking it is that there are many people across the country who actually believe the earth is flat, Russell's ideas kind of swept across the country fairly quickly and easily. It didn't matter that Russell was unqualified. It didn't, didn't matter that his prophecies never came true. He actually changed his view on Christ's return multiple times, saying he had already returned in 1874. And then he said that Christ hadn't returned yet, but he would return in uh, 1914. And then after 1914, 19, 1914, <laughs> after 1914 came and went, he said, oh, you know, I meant 1918, my bad. But still, large congregations gathered for his Bible studies. They followed a specific structure which was laid out in the Watchtower magazine that you could follow along with. Russell created an administrative office to monitor these meetings and to elect individuals to be elders over each congregation and to facilitate the gatherings where people could come and unlearn all of their evil Orthodox Christian ways. Sing songs together about how God's not a trinity or there's no hell or Christ is a created being and prepare for Christ's return you know, whatever date Russell was saying it was at the time. Unfortunately, his 1918 prediction, I feel like I'm saying dates weird, (laughs) 1918. His 1918 prediction was his last one, okay? Because he died in Pampa, Texas, Texas forever, amen, in 1916 at the age of 64 on one of his tours to visit, you know, one of these congregations following his Bible study. He actually died, this is a fun fact, of a urinary tract infection, which gives a a great new meeting to the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. So, the Russellites, they denied the Trinity, hell, the deity of Christ, among other things, and sold magazines door to door to spread their theology. And nothing about Russell's false prophecies, lack of qualification, or even stories of uh, gross immorality, that none of these things could cause them to desert their faith. And so you see that not much has changed in the Jehovah's Witness movement. They continue to go to their neighbors, telling people what they've been told in the magazine, say, they continue to sell those magazines to other people, trying to kind of spread their gospel via a magazine subscription. But they don't get paid to do it anymore. Because whereas in Russell's tenure, it was seen as a voluntary decision to tell your neighbors about the end times conspiracies, under the next Watchtower organization president, selling these magazines became a matter of salvation. So after Russell's death, his leadership of the Watchtower Society was quickly assumed by a man uh, by the name of Judge Joseph Franklin Rutherford. I mean, he sounds like a president. If that guy's in the room and you're trying to figure out who the president of something's gonna be, it's obviously gonna be Judge Joseph Franklin Rutherford. 
Now, Rutherford is extremely important to the movement because in the same way that Mormonism wouldn't have survived without Brigham Young, the Watchtower Society most likely would have flamed out if it weren't for the leadership and aggressive business acumen of Rutherford. Rutherford did several things. He strengthened the control and centralized the power of the Watchtower Society itself, whose headquarters uh, by this time had been moved to Brooklyn, New York. Um, and he, he just centralized the power, making it, it was more federal and less republic, if that makes any sense. And he fired anyone who expressed any sort of opposition to the direction he was taking the organization. And he called members of the, the society, those who remained Jehovah's Witnesses, in order to differentiate faithful members from dissenters. So he's where that name came from. Well, it's hard to keep track of where dissension's happening throughout a global organization without much oversight. And so he also increased the oversight of local meetings and even individual members by making their membership in the society contingent upon selling Watchtower publications door to door and reporting back a log of their hours, successful conversions, etc. And so during this time, we see the Watchtower Society's publications kind of evolve to be more and more instructive and not simply what to believe, but how to speak and how to live and how to dress. Basically, it was this guide and how to prove that you were one of Rutherford's disciples, that you were a real Jehovah's Witness versus one of the dissenters. Therefore, uh, Rutherford listed specific commands from the society for Jehovah's Witnesses to abstain from celebrating pagan holidays like Christmas and birthdays, pagan holidays, or saluting any flags, or singing any national anthems, emphasizing calling God by the name Jehovah, or that Jesus died on a vertical pole rather than a cross. All of these are still aggressively emphasized by Jehovah's Witnesses today, and they were all just a way, a tactic of making sure people followed the new road provided by Rutherford rather than uh, sort of the old guard. But here's the most important thing that Rutherford did while presiding over the Jehovah's Witnesses. He transformed the Watchtower Society from just an association of common faith to what he called the theocracy, meaning a government institution which rules in the place of God. What the organization decreed, God decreed. Who the organization denounced, God denounced. How the organization commanded its followers to live, it was as if God was giving this command and if you did not follow it, you are not a true believer. As Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so they would say that only those who submit to and obey his theocratic organization truly love him and truly will be saved. And this remains, it sounds so far out, but this remains how Jehovah's Witnesses view the Watchtower organization. And I, I don't think I have to really illustrate how problematic that is. This is the biggest obstacle that stands in the way of Jehovah's Witnesses and the truth. And so let's just spend a, a few minutes talking about the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. They believe that if you study or read the Bible on your own, or are guided or helped by anyone outside of the society, or if you're discipled by anybody outside of the society, or you try to live out Christianity outside of the governance of the society, you will inevitably corrupt the scriptures, be led further and further away from the truth, and refuse Christ's grace so long as you refuse this one organization in New York's oversight and authority. But don't listen to me. Listen to the society itself. I have all these in your, in your notes. We acknowledge 
as the visible organization of Jehovah on earth, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, and recognize the society as the channel or instrument through which Jehovah and Christ Jesus give instruction and meet in due season to the household of faith. Now remember that giving meat to the household of faith bit. We're going to talk about that in a sec. Make haste to identify the visible theocratic organization of God that represents his king, Jesus Christ. It is essential for life. Doing so, be complete in accepting its every aspect. They, meaning Jehovah's Witnesses, must adhere absolutely to the decisions and scriptural understanding of the society because God has given it this authority over his people. Okay, it gets gets better. It gets even better. Jehovah does not impart his Holy Spirit and understanding and appreciation of his word apart from his visible organization. Okay, and finally, to receive everlasting life in the earthly paradise, we must identify that organization and serve God as part of it. Okay, stuff like this, it just makes my blood boil. This is why we talk so much about the sufficiency of scripture that God has given in his word everything he requires you to know in order to love and know and obey him. Any organization that says you are in sin if you do this or that thing, which isn't implicitly or explicitly commanded or prohibited in the scriptures, is denying the sufficiency of scripture and saying God's word didn't do a good job teaching us what righteousness looks like. So I'll just add to that with extra rules and laws because I know better than God. Avoid anyone who says anything like that, whether subtly or implicitly or whatever. Maybe not avoid them, maybe point out where they are going awry, where they are denying the sufficiency of scripture. Now, how can they say that what their organization says is what God says? Because that's a pretty big leap, right? (laughs) Well, they believe the organization is the faithful and wise servant mentioned in Matthew 24, or what they translate as faithful and discreet slave. I don't know what that translation what benefit that grants them but that's how they translate it so Matthew 24 45 says who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time so from this verse alone which is really about remaining faithful to the commands of Jesus the watchtower organization goes away from the commands of Jesus and asserts that their organization is this servant of God providing spiritual food through magazine articles, to the household of God. Therefore, since they are this servant or slave, then whoever accepts food from them is the household of God. You see how that logic works out? They're they're begging the question. You see how that, they're saying, whoever we give food to and accepts it, that must be the household of God. But they're begging the question. And yet, this belief about the Watchtower organization is the very foundation of all of their members' faith. Again, the Watchtower Magazine says, all who want to understand the Bible should appreciate that the greatly diversified wisdom of God can become known only, okay, only through Jehovah's channel of communication, the faithful and discreet slave, okay, aka the Watchtower Organization. I like to call that the doctrine of sola watchtower. Through this organization and this organization alone, God teaches and interprets scripture for his people. And if you're not an official member logging your hours of door-to-door magazine sales, then you are not of the household of God. 
So that's the legacy of the Watchtower second president, Joseph Rutherford. Now I'm not gonna get into all the really fun stuff about him where he like built a mansion in San Diego that served as his personal vacation home, but he claimed that he built it for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and other Old Testament saints. He built it with Watchtower money. And then they were supposed to, whenever they were resurrected before the Battle of Armageddon, they were supposed to move in, but they never did. He also prophesied that the ownership of the home would always belong to the organization and it would never be sold. And like most of their prophecies, it was sold in 1948 to a uh, private owner, just six years after Rutherford died from colon cancer while vacationing at the home. The only other significant leader to talk about was uh, Nathan Knorr, okay? You can kind of remember his name because he is uh, neither a Bible scholar nor a Christian, okay? Nathan Knorr was named president following Rutherford's death. He's significant really because of his commissioning of the New World Translation of the Bible. Because before Nathan Knorr, Jehovah's Witnesses primarily used the King James Version, But obviously all the talk about Christ's divinity and talking about the Holy Spirit as a person, that probably got really annoying. I mean, can you imagine, you know, knowing the truth, trying to read your Bible as it teaches the opposite of what this cultish authoritarian magazine club you subscribe to is telling you is true? Oh man, that was, what a headache. So Nathan Knorr did all the Jehovah's Witnesses a favor by commissioning a Jehovah's Witness friendly translation of the New Testament that was completed in 19. 50, followed by their Old Testament that was published 11 years later. The only other significant addition from Noor was that uh, this teaching that it's evil and unbiblical for Jehovah's Witness to accept a blood transfusion based on the Mosaic Law's prohibition of eating blood. Noor basically said, if you can't eat blood, then you certainly can't put it in your veins, even though Jesus said it's not what goes into you that makes a person unclean or that Nathan Nord didn't have a problem with eating pork or bacon, which the Old Testament also uh, prohibits. So anyway, anyone who received a blood transfusion would prove themselves outside of the kingdom of God. So don't do it. That's Nathan Nord. There have been a lot of presidents since, not a lot, but a few. Uh, and they're really not worth mentioning. Basically, when thinking about the growth of Jehovah's Witnesses and their history, think of it this way. Russell invented the locomotive, Rutherford laid the tracks and everyone else has simply driven the train. Oh yeah, Nor rewrote the Bible. Okay, so let's talk about that translation of the Bible because it's extremely important, important to Jehovah's Witnesses. The New World Translation is the name of that Bible. And like I said, Jehovah's Witnesses were using the King James Version and have been for a long time. But it disagreed with a lot of their theology even prompting Russell, the original founder, to stress that you should just avoid reading the Bible without his personal commentaries. You didn't have his commentaries, you should just avoid reading it altogether. Look at this amazing quote. Not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan, meaning, you know, chronologies and, you know, how to reinterpret the Trinity and all these different things. Not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan and studying the Bible by itself, But we see also that if anyone lays the scripture studies, which are Russell's published commentaries, aside, even after he has used them, after he has become familiar with them, after he has read them for 10 years, if he lays his, you know, commentaries aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone, 
Though he's understood his Bible for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years, he goes into darkness. On the other hand, if he had merely read the commentaries with their references and had not read a page of the Bible, as such, he would be in the light at the end of two years because he would have the light of the scriptures. Okay, you just read the Bible, you, won't, you probably won't read it correctly. You'll do something crazy like affirm the Trinity or the deity of Christ, so just read the commentaries and that'll be better for you. So Nor just decided to cut out the middleman. Here's what you need to know about that translation. Jehovah's Witnesses are told this is the best translation available. Okay, for one thing, it's the only translation that translates God the Father in the New Testament to the word Jehovah, what they believe to be God's true name, though not a single Greek manuscript ever uses the name Jehovah. Jehovah's Witnesses are told that since no other translations do this, it shows that they were not written by true followers of Jehovah, and therefore, they're from Satan himself. And so, you just need to know, when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your doorstep and you try to reference your little ESV, they're not gonna be too keen on listening to anything it says or any argument you try to make from it because it's from the devil, but they're wrong because it's not. Uh, the original translation committee was made up of five men, none of whom were qualified to translate the Bible. They weren't even close to being qualified. Four of the men only had high school educations and only one of them went to college, but he dropped out of sophomore year. None of the translators had any education in Greek or Hebrew. One of them claimed that he did, but when put under examination in court, he failed to translate a single sentence from the original languages. Also, qualified linguists and translators universally condemn the New World Translation. I listed a couple of quotes there, but I'll just read my favorite one from a British scholar named H.H. Rowley, who said, from beginning to end, this volume is a shining example of how the Bible should not be translated. And then finally, the translation is incredibly biased rewriting key passages in order to cover up historic orthodoxy or support Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrinal conclusions. And so they remove and add words in order to make it seem like Jesus is not God. And they translate words incorrectly to push their theological agenda. And so basically they removed all the things they could find which tended to be problematic for their readers. Primarily anything that identified Jesus as God. So for example, they'll call Jesus, they'll add the article a, uh, a God before God. Any, any text that says that Jesus is God, they'll say Jesus is a God. Or there's this word proskuneo, which is uh, which translated worship. All throughout the New Testament is translated worship. And guess what? The Jehovah's Witnesses translate it worship as well. And so when Jesus says the, to the Pharisees that they worship the devil, well, that's how they, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, that's how they translate proskuneo, worship. That makes sense. But anytime proskuneo is applied to Jesus, like when Jesus, uh, you know, walks on water and calms the storm and the disciples worship Jesus, the Jehovah's Witnesses translate proskuneo to, uh, to be honor or show obeisance, which just means like a lot of honor. But it's not worship because only God should be worshiped and they believe that Jesus is not God. So it's an extremely biased uh, translation. So that, that's the New World Translation. It's been through several revisions. 
there are all these apologetics websites dedicated to finding errors and inconsistencies in the New World Translation. And it seems that the Watchtower actually follows these sites, okay? Because with each revision, they'll take out inconsistencies that these Christian apologists most highlight, which is kind of funny. So it's kind of like this weird game of cat and mouse uh, as you're, you know, giving people a book that's the foundation of their eternal destiny. (laughs) That's so funny. Okay, now I want to dive a little deeper into what exactly Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. I want to look specifically at the most problematic things that Jehovah's Witnesses believe and teach and really just demonstrate why it's impossible to be a Jehovah's Witness and a Christian. These two faiths are at odds with one another and their differences are irreconcilable and that will become clear as we walk through these doctrines. Starting with the doctrine of God or theology uh, proper, Christians believe that God is triune. We're monotheists, not polytheists like Mormons or Hindus. Christians believe there is one God and only one God and in the Godhead there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is this unity and a diversity in and of himself. That's what it means to be triune. But Jehovah's Witnesses deny the Trinity. They agree with Christians that there's only one God, but they join Muslims in explicitly teaching that there are no persons other than God the Father and the Godhead. And here's what's frustrating about that. Jehovah's Witnesses are very proud of their rejection of Trinitarianism. But what they call Trinitarianism is actually polytheism which we would reject as well. Listen to this excerpt from the Watchtower magazine. Ask the student, how many Jehovahs are there? And let him answer. The answer is obvious, that there's only one Jehovah. If he is one Jehovah, then could he be three gods? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, as the Trinitarians teach. Well, that's not what we teach. No Christian believes that there are three gods, just like no Christian denies the Trinity. And so it's, it's so frustrating and unfortunate to see someone despise sound doctrine simply because they've completely misunderstood it. And I can say the same about the doctrine of election or limited atonement or God's sovereignty. It's frustrating when people say, oh, you believe in predestination, that we're all robots? And I want to say, with that very question, you demonstrate that you have no understanding of the doctrine that you're opposing. And likewise, Jehovah's Witnesses clearly do not understand the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, and yet they deny it. And they also deny that the person of the Holy Spirit even exists. They agree that there's a Holy Spirit, but Jehovah's Witnesses contend that the Spirit is this impersonal force, almost like the force from Star Wars, okay? The Spirit is this thing that gives humans power and power specifically to do God's will on earth. So for example, Jesus' ministry begins with his baptism. And at his baptism, the spirit descends on him like a dove. Jehovah's Witnesses will say that this was God bestowing Jesus with this power and this result. And the result of that is that Jesus was able to do miracles and read people's minds and change water to wine, all these cool things. And so that's what the spirit is and does in the life of the Jehovah's Witness. Spirit's kind of like this spiritual shot of espresso, You know, God wants to accomplish his will through humans, but you know, humans can be kind of limited and sluggish in their pursuit of his will. So God gives them a little shot of spirit and bam, we can do all these cool things and live righteously and share the Jehovah's Witness message, see people converted, etc. So that's their 
heretical view of the Godhead. The way that they describe God shows that they are not worshipers of the Christian God because the Christian God is triune. But what about Jesus? Okay, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, right? They're talking about Jesus all the time. So what do they believe about the doctrine of Christ? Christians believe that Jesus is the unique son of God, okay, and the second person of the Trinity. He's the eternal word made flesh, which is a way of saying he's one person with two distinct natures, and he's fully God and fully man. This is what Christians believe, and we believe that this Jesus is the only one who can save us from our sin. The only person that can save us from our sin is the one who is fully God and fully man, someone who can fully die a vicarious death and fully remove our guilt and reconcile us to God. If Jesus is only a man, then he's a man who lived a perfect life and he died, and that's it. His perfect life might be great for him, but that perfection doesn't really affect me. It's like Warren Buffett being a successful businessman. He's done a great job. Good job, Warren. That doesn't somehow mean that I've done a great job. If anything, if Jesus is just a man, his righteousness only condemns me more, showing that I, I could be perfect, I could have done it better, and yet I failed over and over and over again. But on the other hand, if Jesus is only God, then he can't stand in our place, pay the debt that we owe him. He can't serve as our high priest. And so your Christology is incredibly important because our salvation is made or lost depending on who Jesus is. And if he is anything but the God-man, then he is anything but our Savior. So the scriptures reveal a Christ who is fully God and fully man, the eternal word made flesh, but Jehovah's Witnesses deny this faith. They completely reject Christ. Instead, they propose the ancient heresy of Arianism, asserting that Jesus is a created spirit being. Jesus is actually the archangel Michael, which means he's not God the Son and therefore should not be worshiped. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that God created Michael and Michael was the, the, only, the, the direct creation of God. Everything else creation was created through Michael, but God directly created him. And so this is why Michael or Jesus should be called the son of God because he's God's you know, creation. And Michael eventually gave up his spiritual existence to become the man, Jesus. And by that, Jehovah's Witnesses mean Michael the angel stopped existing and Jesus the man began to exist. You might say, what? How does that work? Well, you know, if you exist, then you stop existing. And then that's the end of you, you know? You can't just like, not exist anymore, but still exist, right? That's just the end. Once you lose existence, even if all of a sudden someone appears that looks just like you and has the same personality and the same friends, if you truly stopped existing, then this new thing is a completely new creation. And in no way you. It's like just a new person that looks like you. And yet, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the angel Michael stopped existing. That's actually what they say. There's no more Michael. And instantly... Jesus, a human, and only a human, started existing. They don't say that Jesus is angelic or divine. He's not fully angel, fully man. No, he's exclusively a man. That's all he is, a man, a dude. Meaning, he's a completely new creation and completely unrelated to Michael. But Jehovah's Witnesses don't really have an explanation for this. They, they just teach that Michael and Jesus are the same even though they're completely different beings with no real connection to each other. Now, this man, Jesus, and only a man, 
He died on a torture, t- torture stake, a pole, not a cross. I don't know why that's so significant to them. Uh, and it's completely false. And we'll talk about what his death means for us according to the Jehovah's Witnesses in a second. But here's the weird part about Jesus' dying. Jehovah's Witnesses reject a belief in an intermediate state, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible teaches that human beings are a unity of body and soul, or flesh and spirit, or some people will say we're body, soul, and spirit. But regardless, humans are this unity of body, of material and immaterial, okay? Of body and soul. And when you die, your body goes in the ground, and your soul, this spiritual aspect of who you are, goes somewhere to await the resurrection. We believe that Christians enter the presence of God while unbelievers go to hell, which is like a terrible waiting room where you're just waiting to be resurrected only to be judged and then go into another place of hellish torment. But Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe this at all. Instead, they believe that when a person dies, they cease to exist. Now, right out of the gate, I'll say this as charitably as I can, that is a stupid belief. Because when a person dies, guess what? Their body doesn't vanish. So at least some part of them continues to exist. But who cares? Jehovah's Witnesses believe that when a person dies, they cease to exist. But that's a huge problem if you're Jesus. Because Jesus was resurrected after three days. Here's what they say. Jesus died, ceased to exist. And after he was put into the tomb, God disposed of Jesus' body. And then he recreated the archangel Michael. But remember, like we mentioned all this time, Michael has ceased to exist. And so this Michael technically isn't Michael, but a brand new creation. So God technically has two sons, Michael and Michael. But anyway, it's the angel Michael that rolls the stone away and steps out of the tomb. And then he, as Jehovah's Witnesses teach, I'm quoting them here, appeared to his disciples on different occasions in various various fleshly bodies, just as angels had appeared to men of ancient times. Like those angels, he had the power to construct and to disintegrate those fleshly bodies at will for the purpose of proving visibly that he had been resurrected. So Mary doesn't recognize Jesus, thinks he's a gardener. Well, because that was Michael constructing a body of a gardener. Sounds like a really strangely specific workout goal. When, when Jesus appeared to Thomas and the other disciples, well, Michael did a lot of a better job with this human form construction thing because he looks pretty close to how Jesus looked in his final days. And so everybody's running around like, yay, Jesus is risen. He's been resurrected. This is so great. And Michael's like, yeah, okay, you know, I asterisk. That's not true, but I'm an archangel, so I don't care about truth, apparently. And so Michael, not Jesus, is taken up into heaven and takes his seat at the right hand of God. And everybody lived happily ever after. Here's what all of that means. Jehovah's Witnesses are certainly not Christians. But even worse, they put their faith in a man who is actually unable to conquer death. He can't conquer death. He he just died and ceased to exist. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of, we are of all people most to be pitied. Jehovah's Witnesses preach that Christ has not been raised, which is a denial of the true Christian faith. But even if they're right, that he hasn't been raised, according to Paul, their faith is futile 
and they're still in their sins. Okay, so the Jehovah's Witness position, don't know if I mentioned this, is not the Christian position. Speaking of sin, let's talk about the doctrine of salvation. Christians believe that all people are born dead in their sin. We're born enemies of God through the sin of Adam. And our affections are set on opposing God. And instead of worshiping God, worshiping ourselves. But by grace, God unites believers to Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Believers are justified as all of Jesus' righteousness is reckoned to us and our debt of sin is paid. And we are fully forgiven for all sins, past, present, and future. But the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for present or future sins. Instead, they teach that Jesus' death only brought the scale back to zero. We were $1 trillion in debt, and Jesus paid exactly $1 trillion to our bank for us. But God still demands righteousness. You know, your ticket to eternal life isn't free, so you might have a zero balance at your, in your bank account, but you need something to get that ticket to eternal life. And so according to Jehovah's Witnesses, it's not enough to simply rely on Jesus' righteousness to be saved. It takes that and something more. I'll let the Watchtower magazine, again, just tell it like it is. What a wonderful resource this magazine has been in this teaching. To get one's name written in that book of life will depend on one's works. Okay? Salvation is not by grace, but rather by Jesus canceling your debt and then you maintaining a good relationship with the Watchtower organization, submitting and doing whatever the organization tells you to do, going door to door and evangelizing. These are the means by which Jehovah's Witnesses' salvation is earned. Okay, the last of the Jehovah's Witness beliefs I want to mention are in regard to resurrection and hell. Let's start with the resurrection and end with hell, which unfortunately is appropriate for a lesson on Jehovah's Witnesses. Remember how I mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in an intermediate state, okay? When you die, you cease to exist. But don't take my word for it. Again, when a person is dead, he is completely out of existence. That was written in, you can live forever in paradise on earth, one of their publications. So you, can, so you cease to exist. So then one on earth is a resurrection. How can you not exist and then exist again and even know that you're the same person? Well, Jehovah's uh, Witnesses teach that at the resurrection, Jehovah has a perfect memory of you in his mind and he recreates you just as he remembered you with your mind, your morality, your personality. You're a little more attractive than the real you because Jehovah makes the best you. So whatever you would look like if you stopped eating Doritos. But they'll admit that this is actually a recreation. Jehovah is creating billions of new people based on the memory of old other people. And so hear me out. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you have no hope of resurrection. Because when you die, that's it. You cease to exist. And then some new person is created. And they inherit the salvation that you worked for. Or they get punished for all the bad stuff that you did. Which then brings us to the conception of hell in the mind of the Jehovah's Witness. According to Jehovah's Witnesses, there is no place called hell. Hell is not a place, it's simply a euphemism for the grave or death. You see, Christians throughout history have believed that if you offend an infinite God, 
and he offers you grace and you still revel in your opposition to him, you receive exactly what you deserve, a kingdom of your own apart from his benevolent presence, apart from the presence of your enemy, God. But Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, even though it actually does. But think all the way back to Charles Russell and his struggle with the idea of hell. Jehovah's Witnesses don't think that, they think it's, it's not too loving for God to damn people to eternal torment for, you know, just sin. And so Jehovah's Witnesses say that the punishment that the wicked receive for their sin is annihilation. They simply die and cease to exist for a second time. By the way, we've got a blog on our website called Annihilating Annihilationism. It's really helpful in regard to this topic, so go give that a read. Uh, So that's basically an overview, overview of the Jehovah's Witness movement. I just want to close with this. I hope that I've demonstrated by simply reading what Watchtower publications say that Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. We just kind of skim the top of their beliefs and it is very clear. Yes, they're extremely zealous. They're active in their study of the falsified Bible and knowing the ins and outs of their faith. But Paul would say that they have a zeal just not according to knowledge. And zeal is not the righteousness of Christ. And because the Watchtower organization strategically and efficiently keeps their followers from a knowledge of the truth, from a true knowledge of Christ, it can be extremely difficult to convince a Jehovah's Witness to even consider that their faith might be wrong. And so I just want to encourage you, if you know a Jehovah's Witness, continue to pray. Continue to have conversations. Or you have neighbors, or you, you think you might encounter somebody who is a Jehovah's Witness, continue to pray continue to look for conversations if they're even allowed to associate with a devilish Trinitarian like yourself. And take comfort in the fact that your faith was given to you while you were an enemy of God, while you were in unbelief, while you were opposed to the kingdom of God, you were given faith freely, fully, forever. No one is outside of the reach of God's grace. So we pray that his grace would be given to even those among the Jehovah's Witnesses who are denying him actively. So with that, let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you're good uh, and you're a gracious God who's rescued us. We're, we are no different than Jehovah's Witnesses in the sense that, uh, you, uh, that we were your enemies and you saved us. So we thank you for your grace. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would equip us to disciple um, those from other worldviews, including Jehovah's Witnesses. I pray that we would be able to have conversations uh, with friends and family members or neighbors who are Jehovah's Witnesses and that uh, people would forsake the Watchtower organization in favor of your church, uh, Lord, that they would forsake uh, a human institution in favor of uh, the gift of your son and uh, the grace of your spirit, the seal that seals us for the resurrection. We just thank you uh, for your grace to us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would be with us, uh, Lord, and that we would continue to grow in a love and a knowledge of your word and of your gospel and of truth. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.